All right. If you have a Bible, turn to our passage in Genesis 16. The Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil and how God will ultimately solve the problem of evil. And the first of two great hinges that the entire Bible swings on is Genesis 12. The other great hinge would be the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the two great hinges of Scripture. The first is Genesis 12, just 12 chapters into the Bible. Now, in Genesis 1 through 11, we get this triple play of evil. I've talked about that in, in the weeks prior to now. In Genesis 1 to 11, we, we get established the problem of evil. And then in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. And he promises Abraham that through him, God is going to rescue the world. He's going to restore the world and heal it and ultimately remove the pain and the suffering and evil and all of its residue. Now this morning is the fifth sermon of about 15 sermons that we'll have walking through the life of Abraham. And as we look at Abraham, this founding figure in God's great plan of rescue and restoration, one of the things we see is that Abraham is learning to trust God. He's learning to trust God against all odds. And the stories of Abraham, if they show us anything, they show us how difficult it is to trust God. You know, it can be a cliche among Christians, trust God. I mean, it's become a cliche in America that's lost all meaning, right? Its ubiquity has rendered it meaningless, right? It's stamped on our coins, in God we trust. But this is hard. And this morning we've arrived at one of Abraham's great failures of faith. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him No children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Interesting. This is the first time Sarah speaks in the whole story. Of Abraham's life. Starting way back in Genesis 11. We meet Sarah. And this is the first time Sarah says anything. And what, is, what are the first words out of her mouth? Barrenness. That's how she identifies herself. She can't get pregnant. And it's eating her alive. For 10 years. She's been following God's path. And she knows that the God she is following. Is the God who is wounding her. It is this God that she left everything for who has closed her womb. She's right when she says that. She knows that this God is the cause of her infertility. Now that's not always the case. But in this case, it is true. So what does Sarah do? With her back against the wall. With this deep wound. 
with this longing for children. What does she do? She takes matters into her own hands and she follows the long-established ancient Near Eastern practice of giving her servant to her husband. Now, it's important to know that up to this point in the Bible, up to this point in the history of God's relationship with his people, he has given no rules for marriage. How it works. What its expectations are. So she reaches out to a common practice in that culture. And according to everyone's opinion around Sarah, what she does in this moment is perfectly reasonable. But the root of this particular action, in this particular situation, for this particular couple, the root is a lack of faith. The language of verses 2 and 3 is saturated with the particular words and the particular phrases and the actual syntax of Adam and Eve in the fall. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The author is writing this story in a way that gives us its interpretation. Look, Old Testament uh, stories, they rarely make explicit moral judgments. This is not modern American, heavy-handed, over-the-top, superficial Christian art. The, uh, the, the judgment of God is there, but it's not there explicitly. It, it's written in such a way that you've got to be an active reader. That you don't need to just get an impression. You need to dig into it and reflect on it. And suddenly you see, you've heard this phrase, listen to the voice. Only one other time in all the Old Testament. And it's when God is rebuking Adam for the sin. And not only that, but in verse 3... The key nouns and the verbs are the exact key nouns and the exact verbs in the exact order of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned. In Genesis um, chapter 16 verse 3 it says that Sarah, Abraham's wife, took, gave, and then the word husband. The exact key nouns and verbs in the exact same order are in Genesis 3, verse 6. Eve took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband. Now, that's the perspective of the author, is that we've got a rerun of the fall. Even though that everybody in the culture says that that's a legitimate move, the author is weighing in with a heavy-handed judgment and saying, no, it's not. Sarah took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to her husband, to Abraham. This is no light sin. This is a terrible thing. Abraham and Sarah have lost patience with God. So they stopped trusting in God. And they put their trust in their own selves to sort the problem out. See, it's interesting. Sometimes faith requires action. We saw this in Genesis chapter 13 a few weeks ago. Abraham's faith was, on, was expressed when he went to war and rescued Lot. It was his faith that drove him to courageously make his life vulnerable and rescue his nephew. This was faith-driven action. Faith-driven courage. This was trusting his life into the hands of God in what he did. But sometimes the faithful thing to do is to do nothing. 
to wait. To let God sort it out. Sometimes our faithlessness is in our waiting when we should be acting. And sometimes our faithlessness is in our acting when we should be waiting. There are times in life when you have the option of doing something that any ordinary person would do. It's not against the law and it's not frowned upon. But it is unacceptable to God. It's not trusting in God. It's a failure to trust in God. It doesn't matter what the law of the land says about marriage. Nations don't get to determine the meaning of marriage. God does. You don't get to pick the meaning of marriage. It doesn't matter that every other college student is sleeping around. It doesn't matter that other people cheat on their tax returns. There's a, there's a million things in life that for us is just like this. It's amazing, isn't it? Scripture, you turn to it to read it and suddenly discover it's reading you. You turn to Scripture to learn about God and suddenly discover that God is holding up a microscope to your own life. God is no Machiavellian. The ends never justify the means. Sarah's desire for a child and a family is entirely in accord with God's will. But even though her desire is pointed in the right direction, Sarah's mistake concerns the way forward. She devises her own plan. But no matter how desperate she was, and don't skip over this, 10 years of infertility destroys people. This is brutal. Don't mistake the brevity of the story for a lack of emotional depth. This is a brutal situation. But no matter how desperate she is, Abraham and Sarah should never have attempted anything that went against God's will. And a move against a marriage is always against God. A move outside of faith is always a sin. Faith is hard. It's hard to cast our cares on God without binding his power to the order of nature. It's hard to cast our cares on God without limiting God's options to the ones that we think he can do. To the paths that we can understand him making this thing work. Faith is difficult. Sarah should have trusted that the God who closed her womb could have opened her womb. Why didn't she take that next step? Why didn't she really did believe God closed it? Why didn't she believe God could open it? Because faith is hard. Her son does. A few chapters later, Isaac, wife, same situation. And in the pain of infertility, it says his wife was barren. God had closed her womb. So you know what Isaac did? He learned from this story. It says, so he prayed. And the, the contrast, we're supposed to see Sarah's remarkable failure of faith in this particular situation. Faith is not easy. It calls for a persistence against the common sense. It calls for believing in a gift from God which none, none of the present data can substantiate. 
Surely many of us can sympathize with Abraham and Sarah. Even those of us who desperately want to believe God find ourselves in these situations in life where it is impossible to keep believing God. When our backs are against the wall, it is so difficult to live and walk and act and think and feel in faith. But it's critical that we do. Because when we do act and live and hope and trust in God, when we don't do that, things get ugly. The whole thing backfires. Hagar conceives, but immediately the entire household is wrenched into turmoil. Abraham and Sarah, out of their own selfishness and fear and pain, they then, just like Adam and Eve, turn on each other and blame each other. It's a rerun of the fall. Look at verse 5. Sarah says to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Which I suspect is the sanitized version of what she said. Because she is out of control in her anger. Her veins are bulging. I gave my servant to your embrace. Literally, it's quite bawdy. I put her on your lap. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. That was a dumb move for Sarah to make. She did not want God weighing in and judging this situation. You and I know the truth. Because we're reading it as detached observers. But isn't it amazing when we get in the same situation? Isn't it interesting how quick we are to blame others? When an objective reading of our situation would be just like us looking at Sarah now. And we look just as dumb as Sarah looks now. Isn't it amazing how often we, we, we blame other people for our foolishness? Abraham, you agreed that I would be built up by having a child with this woman. And now you must look at me the way she does. You must look at me with disdain just like she does. I bet you don't like me because I can't have a child and she can. Do you see how her pain and her bitterness is suddenly striking out like a snake at anything that comes near Just like Hagar, Abraham, you despise me too. Are you doing this? At some point in your own life right now, have you you acted out of faith? And are you turning on your spouse, on your friend, on your roommate, and throwing it on them? Anybody that had the least amount of of participation in your action, are you shifting it all onto that person? All of us, so willing to let ourselves off the hook, to wash our hands of our own responsibility. That's the first half of the chapter. The failure of faith. But in the second half of the chapter, it's the triumph of grace. And to see how triumphant grace is in the second half of the chapter, it's helpful to recognize that in the first six verses, the first scene, it's a two-scene chapter with an intro and a conclusion. In the first scene, it's helpful to realize that no one ever speaks to Hagar. No one ever calls her by name. The, The narrator calls her by name, but Sarah and Abraham never do. 
They don't, they don't direct their speech to her, calling her by name to Sarah. Hagar is a possession. She takes her. She gives her to Abraham. She is nothing more than a seedbed. And after bedding her and planting his seed in her, he abandons her to Sarah. Do with her what you want. And then verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar. (laughs) To Abraham and Sarah, Hagar is nothing more than a convenience. She's a tool. But to Yahweh, to the one true God who knit her together in her mother's womb, this massive, uncontainable God that we just sang about, He knows her name. He sees her as a person. And he refers to her by who she is. But to Yahweh, the creator of all, for the first time in the whole story, Hagar is addressed by her name. Abraham and Sarah didn't care for Hagar. In their failure of faith, they used Hagar. But God cares. He seeks her out. Did you know Hagar is the first woman to receive a birth annunciation in the Bible? That's why I love our painting on the front of our worship God. Annunciation 1. It was the very first one. And if you've grown up in the church, the annunciation always means... Another conversation between another angel and another woman. And the title of this drives us back. Oh, Hagar got the first annunciation. She's the first woman in the Bible to receive promises from the Lord. But she's not the last. She keeps good company. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had the same experience in her despair, in her loneliness. In her own exile, the Lord comes to her and calls her by name and blesses her. Look at verse 13. So how does Hagar respond? She is utterly transformed. Look, in the first scene, Hagar is not without her flaws. She does look with contempt upon Sarah. She does. She has pride towards Sarah. She runs away. She creates such a nasty environment that Sarah turns on her. And then Hagar, instead of repenting, instead of owning up to it, runs. Don't don't overread this when the angel meets Hagar. She's a sinner too. But when when God... When God loves Hagar, the angel of the Lord used 53 times in the Old Testament. Um, Many of the times it's God himself. There's a whole lot of ways I can go into that and show you that's what's happening here. This is the Lord. When the Lord calls her name, look what she does. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Do you see? I mean, her pain was that nobody was seeing her. That all she was was this tool with no name. And suddenly God meets her at her deepest point of need. He says, truly here, she says, truly here I've seen him who looks after me. Your Bible may translate that differently. It's 
it's very, very tricky to translate from the original. But we know the sense of it. She's saying, holy cow, I have seen the God that sees me. That's my translation. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, which is Hebrew for the well of the living one who sees me. That's why I read the story out of John 4. Because there we see another encounter where God meets a woman in need with sexual brokenness at a well. And you need to on your own reflect on how those two passages interpret one another. God sees Hagar. He sees her situation. He sees, he cares, she matters to him. And this is what Abraham and Sarah had stopped believing. They had stopped believing that they mattered to God. They had stopped believing that God saw. They had stopped believing that God cared. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe two things. That he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Abraham and Sarah stopped believing that God was going to be good to them. That God cares for them. But God does care for Abraham and Sarah. It's right there. God's care and God's love for Abraham and Sarah is right there in the infertility. God's care for Sarah is in the suffering. It is in the wound. It is in the darkness. She said it herself. God did this to me. God wounded me. That is the act of God's grace. There are times in our life where God's grace to us is a wound. It's here. It happens. But if you stop believing in the goodness of God, you can no longer see the wounds of God as a gift. Go back to Genesis 4 verse 1. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This remarkable chapter, it's the first story after the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And in this remarkable chapter, it begins with Eve boastfully celebrating the birth of Cain. I have begotten a man. Equally with God. If you could read the weight of the Hebrew poetry, the way she structures the sentence, the emphasis is on what she's done and God was there to help out. And if you don't get that, you're going to do tricky things with Cain's murder of Abel. You see, what happens is as the story proceeds, within a few short verses, Cain picks up his own mother's pride and kills his brother out of his wounded pride. And out of his jealousy. You see Sarah is not ready to be a good mother. God is forming Sarah through her infertility. Now I know this is tricky to talk about in this way. Infertility is not always the wound of God. It's not always the work of God. But as you read this literature. This particular story. That is the case. Sometimes it's the case today. Not always. The Bible is far more complex than just throwing things out there with a sledgehammer. In this particular story, that is the case. The soul. You see, Sarah, God's got to work in Sarah. He's got to transform her. She needs to become something she's not at this moment in time. And the problem with 
changing us is that we change at an incremental pace. The soul changes at an incremental pace. And walking in faith with God means opening your life up to his painful formation. Letting him reach inside of you and teach you and form you and shape you. And learning to trust that he loves you and that he has good for you. I love the way St. Ignatius put this. One of my favorite images out of the entire body of literature that I've ever read is this image St. Ignatius gives. He says, there are very few people who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves entirely into God's hands. There are very few people who let themselves be really formed by His grace. And then here it is. A thick and shapeless tree trunk would never believe that it could become a statue admired as a miracle of sculpture. It would never submit itself to the chisel of the sculptor, who St. Augustine says, sees by his genius what he can make of it. You need to see this. You're a piece of marble. God is Michelangelo. He sees what he can make of you. Who in their right mind would yield themselves to a chisel? Right? Yielding yourself to a saw. This is the stuff of horror movies, right? This is saw. This is that crazy. Who would give themselves to tools to be carved upon? Many people do not understand that they could become saints. And if they would just let themselves be formed by the grace of God. And if they would not ruin his plans... By taking matters into their own hands. Did you know three out of four of the Israelite matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, become mothers only after long periods of infertility? Do you know what God is doing? He is working out of them the pride of Eve. That's what he's doing. What we're seeing is that in the matriarchs, the prolonged period of barrenness before childbirth is how God is confronting Sarah's prideful view of her own ability to have children. Our church is four years old. Six years ago, my family and I, we moved to Birmingham and we started a church. With a group of people who lived there before we got there. And it was an utter catastrophe. Within two years, it had imploded and I had a breakdown. Then we move here. Relatively speaking, the same things. For the first year or so, year and a half, many of the same sermons. And it's flourishing. And you know what I know? It's a gift of God's grace. The gift is in the wound. The Bible says better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy in Proverbs. And then in the Gospels it said Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So in other words, when your friend Jesus wounds you, there's always a gift in the wound. And it was Sarah's steadfast refusal of trusting in the goodness of the one who loved her more than any other. That led to her a profound act of violence to Hagar. 
You see what she did to Hagar? She took her and she gave her. Just like in, in, in chapter 12 when, when Abraham got scared and he got afraid for his life and he pimped out his wife and he forced her into the marriage bed, into adultery with Pharaoh, just like Abraham did. Now we see Sarah doing it, pimping out her husband, forcing him into adultery. That was one of the brilliant insights of the recent TV show Breaking Bad. When you do bad, it will make you bad. And you will be bad to people around you. And this is Sarah Breaking Bad. But this is also the triumph of grace. Here we see God's grace. In seeing and calling Hagar by name. This is the triumph of grace over all of her abuse. And God seeing and wounding Sarah with infertility. This is a triumph of grace over her pride. And in God intervening in this family that is spinning out of control. This is a triumph of grace in Abraham's growth. Whatever his virtues at the beginning of his journey with the Lord, Abraham was a terrible husband. He does not understand the meaning of marriage. In chapter 12, out of his fear for his own life, he he shoves his wife out there. In chapter 16, out of impatience and frustrations, he lets Sarah move him to once again defile the marriage bed. Twice now, he's defiled the marriage bed. Twice now, he's jeopardized his family. And both times, it's when he stops trusting God. God offered him the promise of becoming a great nation. And he wants it. He wants to be great. Genesis 11. The the desire of the hearts of men is to be great. So they build the Tower of Babel. And God strikes it down and says, no, not that way. Then he turns in Genesis 12. He looks at Abraham. Says, you want to be great? And Abraham, like a dog, is lapping. Says, yes, yes. I'm just like everybody else. I want to be great. I want to be a great nation. I'll do whatever you say to be great. Leave everything. Okay, I'll leave it so that I can be great. He wants it. The problem is he doesn't know what greatness really is. And before God will give him the son of promise, Abraham has to learn to be a great husband. He has to learn the meaning of marriage and the worth of a wife. And he has to develop the habit, the discipline of trusting in God, even when he can barely hang on by the tips of his fingers. And that's what God is doing to Abraham. He is teaching Abraham. He's forming him. He's educating him. And he's doing it through the particular events and circumstances of his life. And these are not the events of your life. As far as I know, there's no one in this room that's 85 years old, married to an infertile woman who's been promised the world, and 10 years later it hasn't happened. These are very particular circumstances. What are your circumstances? Because your circumstances of your life, this is how God is at work in your life. He's forming Abraham into a great man of faith by delaying the birth of Isaac. How is God forming you? What is the pressure in your life right now that is pushing your back against the wall? And either you trust God or you strike out on your own and take matters into your own hands. You see, you can't really always know from the outside looking in if a person's acting in faith or not. But God knows. And you will know. 
and the stakes couldn't be higher. God is making Abraham into a great man of faith. And the delay is the triumph of grace in the life of Abraham. God made great promises to Abraham. And if you and I believe in Jesus Christ, these promises and healing and this rescue and this flourishing belongs to us and to our children forever. God made good on the oath he swore to Abraham by sending a son. (laughs) But it was a son Abraham could never have imagined. It was God's own son. Whatever you've done, whatever acts of faithlessness you committed this summer, however you've used and abused people, betrayed your spouse, perverted God's way of life, God sees and He cares. And as you and I learn to trust in Yahweh, the one and only true God, your creator, as you learn to trust him against all odds, you will become great. The Bible is the story of how God is dealing with not only evil on a large level, but the evil in Abraham's own heart and the evil in your heart. It's the story of how God is going to solve the problem of evil. So God chose Abraham and he promised him a son who would rescue the world and restore the world and heal it and ultimately remove the pain and suffering of evil and all of its residue, including the pain of barrenness. You see, many years later, God's faithfulness to everyone shattered everyone's wildest expectations. He sent his own son to be born of Abraham. And this son, Jesus Christ, this son became barren himself on a cross. And his barrenness was to take your sin and your guilt and Abraham's sin and Sarah's guilt to take them and put them on himself. And so he hung on the cross like a barren, wicked, disobedient Abraham and Sarah. And why did he do this? He did this so that God's rescue of this world from evil would fall on you and me. God made great promises to Abraham and to his children forever. And if you and I believe in Jesus Christ, then these promises belong to us and to our children forever. God made good on the oath he swore by sending his son for you and me. So you and I can sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Jesus ready, he's waiting for you at the well. He stands ready to save you, to call you by name. To embrace you in love and power. And and even though you and I, like Abraham and Sarah, have done some awful things, he will embrace us. He will embrace our family. Moms and dads, if we turn to him in faith, it says throughout the Bible, Old Testament to New, 
that in God's extravagant generosity, he'll give that promise to our children too. Do you believe it? That Jesus, the embodiment of the Father's love, conquering the power of sin and guilt and death and condemnation, that he's done it. That he's paid the price for your sins and mine. And that that if you would turn to him and actually believe that, you see from the first to the last in the Bible, it all turns on faith. That's always the key in the Bible. Now, if you were God, you might have picked something else. But as it so happens, you're not. That's what God picked. I talked a few weeks ago. There's an organic reason. It's not arbitrary. Faith rehumanizes us. It recalibrates us that God is the creator and we're the creature and therefore makes us able to become truly human in all of the beautiful glory. Faith is the key. Do you trust in God that he did indeed send his son and that his son died for you and died for the whole of creation to pay for our sins and to rescue all of creation from evil? If you do believe that, if you put your faith in that, not believe it on an intellectual level, but if you bring it into your life so that your whole life centers around it, so it's like a piece of gravity right in the center of your heart and soul and everything gets bent around walking in faith in your creator. If you do that, then Jesus will embrace you in his arms. And so will the Father. And so will the Spirit. Because Jesus paid for your evil. There is no other hope. There is no other place to flee. But to the well at which your creator sees you. There is no other place to flee. But into the open arms of a dear Savior. So let's do that. Let's right now do that. Let's run to him in our prayers. And at his table. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.